All right, so here's what's going to happen. Some of you are going to read more Bible in the next 35, 45 minutes than you've read all year. So get your book out. We're just going to work our way through this. Now remember, last night in Daniel chapter 7, we saw that the Son of Man is coming. It's on page 15 in your book. If you want to look there, it's verses 13 and 14. Now Mark picks up this term, Son of Man, and he uses it repeatedly because Jesus used it repeatedly. So starting from the very beginning of Mark chapter 1, we see that the warrior arise, arrives, and first the way is prepared. Now, Mark does not start with a birth narrative, and I want to say this right off the bat. The birth narratives in Matthew and Luke are necessary because they're establishing a very important theological principle. This is a sidebar. What important theological principle are the birth narratives establishing for us? Anybody know that Jesus is fully God and fully man? That's crucial. Now, we need the other Gospels, but Mark does not start there. Mark wants you to see something entirely different. He wants you to see you to link together how the Old Testament ends, Malachi ends, and he says, in the beginning, the gospel of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is written in Isaiah the prophet. So Isaiah says basically the same thing Malachi says. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord, makes his path straight. Now that's Isaiah 43, verse 3 that he's quoting there. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and honey. That means he was a really weird dude. And he preached saying, after me comes one, here's what you need to underline, mightier than I. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, Matthew picks this up, and I record for you. He basically records the same thing. It's in chapter 3, after the birth narratives. Turn to page uh, 27, and in verse 11, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into a barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, so Matthew's pointing us that, 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 that John's telling us something is coming. One is coming who's going to do some powerful things. Now we go back to Mark chapter 1 in the flow. So right after verse 8 when he says, I baptize you with water, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, in those days came from Jesus of Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So the, the logic in Mark is, one's coming, well, here he is. It's Jesus Christ from Nazareth of Galilee. That's like being from Ranlow, okay? That's just nowhere. Nazareth is a little bitty, tiny place. It was an insignificant town. And it says, he came out of the water immediately, he saw the heavens opening being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son with, who, with you I am well pleased. Now, in a few years, sometimes you may live forever or like your lifetime too, but the queen of England's gonna die eventually. Everybody thinks she should have died a long time ago, but she's an old lady and she just keeps on going. There will be 
I mean, it'll take days for the news to cover the coronation of the king of England. It's meaningless, actually. The king of England has no power whatsoever. But they will make a massive big deal about it, just like they did the wedding here just a few months ago. Now, just think about this. This is the one. And here's the coronation ceremony. It's a baptism in the River Jordan, which is about that deep. And the spirit descends on like a dove and says, this is my beloved son. So God's saying, this is the one. Now, he'll quite immediately happens. Verse 12. The spirit immediately drove him out in the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were, were ministering to him. Now, Mark is so brief about this. Here's all Mark's telling you. He defeats the devil right off the bat. The devil tries to tempt him. He does not succeed because Jesus has a mission in which he has come to do, page 28. Now, after John was arrested, or verse 14 now, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Now, Mark doesn't tell you why John is arrested. I just want you to pause here and think about this. John announces, here's the one, Jesus he baptizes Jesus. Jesus goes to the wilderness. In this time frame, not while he was in the wilderness, but in this short period of time, John is arrested and beheaded. Now, Jesus shows up preaching the gospel of God. What's the implication here? The implication, what's going to likely happen to Jesus? The same thing that happened to John. So you see fearlessness in Jesus right off the bat. He shows up preaching the gospel of God. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, passing along the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, and they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Okay, so here's what's true. This is the one. The guy who said he's the one lost his head. Now this guy comes to me and says, follow me. And immediately it says they left their nets and followed him. There's something compelling about Jesus that causes these men to leave and follow him. He then meets two other guys, two brothers, James and John. And it says, and immediately they, he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat and hired servants and followed him. And he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And he passed by and saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Now, I don't have time to get into the details of this. Now, you've gone from fishermen who lived in Galilee, who everybody would have liked, to a guy who's not from Galilee, who's sitting outside the city gates, who's a tax collector. So think, you can think of the most despised profession around us. So what do you think? What do you think? What profession? What, what employment? What jobs would people have that the rest of us would go, I can't believe they do that? A what? A telemarketer. Okay. Well, you never see their face. Another one? Anybody got another example? A politician. A politician? All right. Oh, well. I like garbage truck dog. What? I didn't hear you. Scam artists. Scam artists. Oh, okay. I thought you were talking about a profession. 
Anyway, he was a scam artist. That's what they were. Now, just think about this. Here's what I'm getting at. Jesus calls somebody that nobody would have liked. And Levi knew this. Jesus had already formed a group of people, and he says to Levi, this is how compelling it is, follow me. And Levi lays down everything and follows Jesus. So you see his authority right off the bat as he engages and calls disciples. Then you see his authority as the warriors he engages demons. They went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue as a teaching and they were astonished at his teaching. He taught them as one who had authority, I'd underline that, and not as the scribes. And immediately they were in their synagogue, a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him and said, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they were questioning among themselves, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. Chapter 3 of Mark. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. Now Jesus is explaining this in Mark chapter 3. Why does this keep happening? Why do the demons keep convulsing these people and coming out of them and then proclaiming, you're the son of God? Jesus says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now, I'm going to not get in a long sidebar here, but you ever heard Christians pray, I bind, I bind you, Satan, all that? You ever heard that? Okay. There's only one person ever bound Satan. His name's Jesus. All right? So you're asking Jesus to do something he's already done. He's bound the strong man, and he plundered his house. He said that's what he came to do. Now, <clears throat> verse 24 of Isaiah 49. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of the tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captains of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. And I will contend with those who contend with you. I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they shall drink with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your savior, your redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. So Jesus here in, is fulfilling the fact is he plundering the strong man, which he's ultimately going to do on the cross, in that moment he's saying, I'm the Redeemer. I am the one. I am the mighty one of Jacob. You also see him engaging creation. As he's crossing the sea, a storm comes up, and Jesus is asleep in the boat. I'm on page 30 now. And they wake up. Jesus is asleep. I love this image. They wake him up. Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? Now, at this point, you ought to be cluing in who this guy is, right? He tells the demons to, to, to leave. They leave. He's compellingly called you. He's asleep in the boat. There's a storm. You ought to be saying, well, let's use a little logic, gentlemen. We're going to be fine. He's asleep. But instead, they wake him up, and, and they yell at him saying, don't you care we're going to die? 
And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea and said, Peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And I love verse 41. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So I'm going to answer the question. He's the mighty one of Israel. That's who he is. And they're starting to get the picture. This is not just about a miracle. This is about someone who is unlike anybody else. Now you see Jesus engaging the authorities. Mark chapter 8. He began to teach that the Son of Man, see it there, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Jesus meant what he said here and they knew he meant what he said. But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered to the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. I'm making a case here. Next page. And when they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, Jesus was walking ahead of him, them, and they were amazed. And those who followed him were afraid. All right, let's do some logic here. It's a little logical work. All right. Jesus has been repeatedly making this claim plainly and clearly. Going to Jerusalem. They're going to do some incredibly awful things to me. They're going to kill me. Three days later, I'm going to rise again. Now it's time for the religious holiday of the Passover, and they are making their way to Jerusalem. And Jesus is resolutely walking out ahead of them. And his followers are amazed. And afraid. So, what are they amazed at? What quality of Jesus at this moment is amazing his followers? What? It's courage. Courage has always been an uncommon thing. So, they're watching him courageously and, and, and they're following him, but you, you get the implication they're following behind him. They're not really sure if they want to be associated with him or not because they're scared. Now, this is going to play out. When they come to get Jesus, what happens to all of his disciples when they come to arrest him? Anybody know? They all scattered. They all feared for their life. Now, he does something about that later, and we'll get to it. He engages now Jerusalem. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of Samaritans to make preparations. But when the people did not receive him because the, but the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Now I love the next verse, verse 54 in this text. This so makes James and John mad. They ask Jesus if he wants, if he wants them to call down fire on Samaria and kill them. Uh, but he says no. We're going to Jerusalem. Now, they get to, to, to Jerusalem, and, and if, you, if you ever get to go, 
Uh, they'll probably bring you in uh, from, from the east, traveling west into Jerusalem, and you ascend up the mountain. This would have been the way Jesus came in. You ascend up the mountain, and you pass through this uh, valley, this pass, and all of a sudden, there's the city. Boom, it's right in front of you. And what would have been evident when they crossed this corner is, is the, the, the temple. Now there's a mosque sitting there. There's one mountain that, that, that you, that you got to go around to see it. Would anybody like to guess what this mountain is? It's yesterday. It's the Mount of Olives. So you got to go around the Mount of Olives to see. So Jesus then would have ascended up the Mount of Olives. And on the Mount of Olives, as he's going down to the Valley Kidron, now this is the king, right? What does he do? He gets on a what? On a donkey. Now, this is completely unlikely that the king is now going to ride in to Jerusalem triumphantly. It's called the triumphant entry. He's going to triumphantly come in. The people are shouting, Mark 11, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Verse 15, and he came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and they were seeking to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished by his teaching. Okay. The whole religious system had become crooked. Everybody was making a fortune off the temple. And the people at the top that were making the fortune were the priests and the rabbis. Jesus has already done this one time before. He's already showed up one time in the temple and flipped over the money changers and sent people out. He had already provoked these people. They wanted him dead but they were scared to deal with him because they were afraid of the crowd. So they're doing what you were doing before you jumped. They're looking around going, okay, we want to kill him, but is this a good idea? So Jesus comes in. Now, he knows what's coming, right? So boldly, he goes right back into the temple and flips over the money changers and kicks people out. He knows what this is going to cause. He knows that they are going to come after him. Now, the way this plays out as the warrior is slain is he is betrayed by one of his own, Judas Iscariot. Now, they're trying to do it, according to Mark 14, by stealth. The chief priests are trying to do it in a sneaky way. Judas probably finds out about this or at least has a good idea. He thinks a good idea that he'll sell Jesus out. So I'm in verse 43 of the bottom. Immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with a crowd and the swords and clubs and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when they came, he went up to him at once, rabbi, and kissed him. And when they laid hands on him and seized him, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out against, uh, as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Now, I love this. Jesus now calls them out right here. 
He says, day after day, I was with you in the temple and teaching, but you did not seize me. What's he saying? What's he saying? Somebody put it together here. What is Jesus saying here? You guys are so bad and tough and you're so in control. I was standing right in the middle of the temple yesterday afternoon. Why didn't you arrest me then? Why is this happening at night when nobody else is around? Because you, you don't have the courage you think you have. And further, you don't know who you're messing with. Because I could call down 12 legions of angels right now. Now, I didn't put this in the book. He proves this. Whom do you seek? Remember this? This is in John. Whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. And you know what two words he says? I am. And it says, everybody fell down to the ground. I don't know about you, but if I was in that group of soldiers who came to arrest him, I would have wet my britches and left. I'll be doggoned if I'd arrested him. And I certainly would not have been a part of beating him and crucifying him the next day had I witnessed that moment. But people are so intent of getting rid of him, they ignore what they see and hear. And they proceed. Now we have Jesus before the council. Led him to the high priest. The elders, the scribes, all these powerful people came together. It's at night. Matthew chapter 14. And the high priest stood up in the midst. I think this is one of the most powerful moments of the whole narrative of the death of Jesus. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? So at this point, he'd been silent. What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garment and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Now, just you right there, Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, they come up again in Revelation. Jesus is going to deal with these people who spit on him right here. Okay, and treated treated him this way. You, you can just read that later. That's free. Now he's condemned, he's mocked, and he's beaten. And I just want you to look at what they say to him. Right in the middle, the soldiers led him away inside the palace. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together. A crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put, on his, clo put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And this is an implication to the Son of Man. It was true. What was hanging above his head was true. 
This is the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. What did he say at the end? Mark doesn't record it. John does. What does he say? It's finished. Now, don't miss verse 39. Any of you, any of you have a grandfather or a relative who was a battle soldier in Vietnam? Just a few of you. How about anybody know an Iraq veteran that was a battle soldier? They ever talk to you about it? Are, are, they, are they happy about it? You ever notice a hardness about them? My grandfather was a World War II soldier. That, it was very common when, you, when I was your age, everybody knew a battle soldier. It was either your dad or your grandpa, everybody. There was a hardness to these people. Now, a centurion got there because he was a vicious, cruel killer. He didn't get here out of politics. This was an enlisted man. He, he didn't get here because his parents were wealthy or because he came from nobility. He got here because he was a killer. And a man over an execution squad was the most wicked of killers. Now, when this man stood at the foot of cross and he watched the Son of Man die, here's what he came to the conclusion. When the centurion stood facing him, Saul, in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Now here's what happened that moment. Colossians chapter 2, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. He plundered the house and bound the strong man at the cross. Then they buried him. Buried him in a tomb and rolled a stone over the entrance of the tomb. And they even set guards over it to make sure nobody took the body. That wasn't going to stand in the way because in the tomb was the Son of Man. So when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And that very early on the first day of the week when the sun risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the, of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back and it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And they said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Now, why did Jesus rise from the dead? Here's the answer. To prove to you that he 
is who he said he is, or that he is who he said he was. He still says he is that. He is the Son of Man. Last night, Carolina and I were talking. Those of you going to Carolina, there's a famous dude there, Bart Ehrman. Even Bart Ehrman, who rejects all the New Testament, believes and agrees with this. If the resurrection happened, it's all true. So it all hinges right here. If if Jesus rose from the dead, then he is the son of man. He is the one whom he said that he was. Now, Matthew 28, we're going to come back to this later in the week. And he came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. How can Jesus make this claim? How can he say all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me? The answer is the resurrection. Because of the resurrection, Jesus can say all authority has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, this so impacted the church that when the Holy Spirit fell on them, Acts chapter 2, they did what Jesus said. Then it started to get hard. Now, I'll just turn a couple pages. I recorded for you here the story of... Stephen. Now, Stephen's story is found in the seventh chapter of Acts. I'm just going to pick up at the bottom. So Stephen, who uh, preach, is preaching the gospel, is arrested. He's brought before the same people. Now, these are literally the same people because this is just months away from the death of Jesus. He's brought before the same people who condemn and crucify Christ. And they tell him to stop preaching. So what does he do? He preaches to them. He preaches the gospel to them. I'm at the bottom of page 40. Standing boldly before these angry men, Stephen gave one of the greatest sermons ever preached as he courageously defended the faith. He rightly defended Christianity and showed his commitment to the gospel with unflinching courage. Stephen established that he was not guilty of blasphemy and presented to them that Jesus is the Son of God. Throughout this ordeal, Stephen's courage was evident. Despite the intense opposition he encountered, he never compromised. Even while on trial for his life, Stephen's courage never wavered as he repeated the gospel message to the men who who truly did have blasphemous hearts. The Sanhedrin should have responded to Stephen's message with repentance, but instead, They rushed upon him, took him outside the city, and stoned him to death. Stephen showed courage in the midst of his death as he asked Jesus to receive his spirit and asked the Lord to forgive those stoning him. Stephen knew that he had nothing to fear in death. Stephen's fearless proclamation of the gospel led him to pay the ultimate price for his commitment. Yet he did not die before he had accomplished God's mission laid out for him. Little did the Jewish leaders know that Stephen's martyrdom was a great catalyst for the spreading of the gospel beyond Jerusalem. A rich harvest grew from the seeds that were planted by Stephen's life and death. You say, what's the point here? The point is because Stephen stepped forward in courage, it motivated the rest of the church, even though intensity fell on them. Folks, one of the most unlikely things, some of you need to research this when you have a paper to write in college. I challenge you to do it. How in the world did Christianity spread in the first century? When the entire world was against it, how did it happen? 
How in the world could this have taken place that it spread so rapidly to so many people? It can only be explained by the Son of Man that he empowered his people. Now, before I leave the Acts uh, Stephen story for just a second. So when Stephen cast his eyes toward heaven as they begin to pummel him with stones, the Bible says that Stephen says that, that he sees um, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. Now, I don't want to overinterpret the Bible here. But this is what happens in my mind every time I read that. Every other time you have the records, one other, excuse me. But every other time it's recorded that Jesus is doing what by the Father? Here he's standing. <laughs> I just get this image that the Son of Man is a... And I just want to ask you a question before I move on. Is your courage ever caused the Son of Man to stand up? Have you ever stepped forward for Christ in such a way that he stood? I'm getting into the next part of the sermon. Let's go back. There's still a portion to be told. There's still something to be fulfilled. Let's read through these. In those days... After the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will give its, not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Remember what he said to the high priest. I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This is Joel chapter 2. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Revelation 1.7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Revelation 19. <laughs> okay. Told you he's going to return to the Mount of Olives. He will not be riding a donkey. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has written a name written that no one knows but himself. And he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword to which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So when I was working on this material, I, I spoke at chapel at Southeastern Seminary, and 
Dr. Danny Aiken, who's the president of the seminary, took me to lunch. Now, he's not a Cadillac kind of guy, but because he's the president of the seminary, the trustees bought him a Cadillac. All right, that just goes with the job. He was apologizing for the Cadillac, and I was making fun of him for the Cadillac, and we're riding on the road. He said, man, I want to play you my, my new favorite song. This was five or six years ago. So he pulls out a CD, and he puts, puts it in, and it's Matt Papa's song, The Lord is a Warrior. And I'm just looking at Dr. Aiken like, really, this is your favorite song? So we're listening to it, and, he, and it gets to, toward the end. I don't know if you ever heard this song. It gets toward the end, and he turns it up. He said, this, this is my favorite part right here. And he cranks it up, and in the middle of the song, there's a rap by Shylin. Here's what it says. He loved us when he made atonement for sin, resurrected at the Father's right hand. He sat down, found on his head a mad crown, smacked down. The sights and sounds amazing, a sharp sword in his mouth to strike down the nations. Today is the day he's welcoming the foreigners. Repent and believe that he hung on the cross for you. Otherwise... You'll meet him as a holy, righteous slaughterer. Somebody called a coroner. The Lord is a warrior. Man. Hear this, young people. I'll read it again. Today is the day he's welcoming the foreigners. Repent and believe that he hung on the cross for you. Otherwise, you'll meet him as a holy, righteous slaughterer. Somebody call the coroner. The Lord is a warrior. Any Tolkien nerds in the room? Don't look around to see. Come on. There's a few of us. You've seen the movies, right? You don't get this kind of writing in the movie. This is what Tolkien wrote in Return of the King. And don't think for a moment that Revelation 19 is not in Tolkien's mind when he writes this. <clears throat> for morning came, and morning and a wind from the sea and darkness was removed and the hosts of Mordor wailed. And terror took them and they fled and they died. And the hoofs of wrath rode over them. Then all the hosts of Rohan burst into song. And they sang as they slew. For the joy of the battle was on them. And the sound of their singing was fair and terrible as they rode into the city. Back in the 90s when we wrote cheesy songs, there was a song called We Will Ride. It was my favorite. And the point of the song was that there's a day's coming when the Lord's army they're going to saddle their horses and take up their swords. And they're going to follow the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords in the battle. He said, I don't know if I believe that. That's what Joel says. And on that day, our singing will be fair and terrible. For those who are with him, 
it will be a joyful day. For those who are against him, it will be the worst day of their eternity. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and for the clarity. Thank you for lamentations that we looked at last night. Thank you for the way you led Shaolin to write this song, that today you're welcoming the foreigner. You sought to present you according to your word. The time will not permit, Lord, for us to explore everything that is true about you, but we do know this. You are the son of man who has conquered death and sin on our behalf. So I plead and pray for those who must repent, who must turn for the holy righteous one is coming. Lord, I pray that we will long for that day and that that will be a sweet and fair day for us as we join you in your coming. Lead us now. Lead your people to rejoice. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.